AFC championship game bound are those Cincinnati Bengals for the second year in a row. And for the second year in a row, a same foe. All are rhyming out of the way. I'm Anthony Cazenza. He's John Sheeran. John, I still am a little bit in shock as to what we witnessed yesterday, but the Bengals just keep chugging along, just keep proving people wrong, and really kind of sent a message yesterday. Sending a message. Sending a message being six-point dogs on the road <laughs> in a blizzard in a place where the visiting team has only won once in postseason history. With Ever. All, with all the talk about the offensive line, with all the talk about the neutral field, the pre-sale tickets, to win by 17 to go 23 points against this supposed spread made by Vegas, which I'm sure made Vegas like a bazillion dollars. I don't think surprising is even the word. I think it's just absolutely just bamboozlement. It's stunning. And not because the Bengals won, but because of how they won. Because Not even because of the margin of victory, but just the total sheer dominance for 60 minutes and the fact that a two versus three game in the in the playoffs, like, yeah, like maybe a team goes up by 10 or 14 early, but the other team comes back. The other team makes a game out of it. That just wasn't the case on Sunday. The Bengals kind of, you know, if you remember old school kind of cartoons, whether it's like Looney Tunes or something like that, when someone's kind of coming at you and they keep, they put the hand on the person's forehead and they just kind of keep running, you know, they never really gain ground. <laughs> it kind of it felt like what well, that's what the Bengals were doing to the Bills yesterday. They just were like, no, nope, just you're going to be stuck right there. And really the Buffalo Bills felt like they were stuck in neutral on offense. They didn't really have many answers on defense. Their best answers they had were questionable calls being overturned and whatnot to kind of keep them in, in the, now they did have, they did end up making a couple nice stops uh, to, to force field goals and kind of still have a pulse there late in the game, but man alive, it, it just, uh, I, I don't know. It, the Bengals really came out hard determined and really took it to the Buffalo bills and in, in really every single aspect. And what John, one of the things we'll talk a lot offensive line, we'll talk a lot of defense, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that, I found to be both really impressive and simultaneously like confusing was how the Bengals players, particularly on the, on the line were able to be on that surface with that layer of snow and not seem like they were playing with ice skates on, but it seemed like the Buffalo bills, a lot of their players were, and that's their home turf. That's their home climate. And I, I couldn't figure that one out. I don't think it's easy for anyone, whether you, you live in Buffalo, Orchard Park, or wherever. I don't think it's easy for anyone to play on sleet. Like I feel like that was what Ted Karras was saying after the game. Like Joe Burrow was, you know, throwing dimes, going nine for nine on, on sleet. Like that seemed to be what the weather was at, at least towards the beginning part of, of the game. You had you had heavy snow, I think, in the like the pregame and everything, and snow was continuing to fall. But it was that layer of sleet that made it like more slick. And I think Burrow's talked about um like you know throwing the ball in snow like it's not as detrimental as throwing it within like rain and wind and everything but it definitely made an impact on a lot of Bengals pass rushers in a game where they pressured I think Allen over 40 percent of his dropbacks but they only were able to sack him once and Allen used that incredible size and speed and agility you know to go with his physical frame to avoid a bunch of sacks and would-be sackers because Bengals players are kind of slipping and sliding all around him but the same was made for the Bills pass rushers right they, and they never really got to burrow and they never seemed to generate a lot of explosion 
out of their stance to to really test the Bengals' uh, pass protectors on, along the edge. So it definitely made an impact on every player on the field. But I, I think the Bengals and just the the way that they came out of the gate really physical and really downhill and kind of punched the Bills in the mouth, it, it kind of gave them the advantage in those elements. And when you're on the ropes like that and you're definitely rattled, like Allen clearly was in the beginning of the game when he was hit a bunch of times in the first quarter, I, I think the elements made it much harder for the Bills to come back. Yeah, and by the way, yes, I am receiving some comments about uh, the lighting over on my side. This is what happens when you're on the the. So it's like I'm, I'm interviewing like an anonymous I know, source. Here. I know, I know, I know. I, I you know, you got my blurred out face here. This is what happens this time of day, this time of year, and when you're on the West Coast having a three thirty start. But uh, we want to give the people what they want with a lot of different shows and a lot of different topics to talk about. John, last week I talked a bit about. I asked you a question, and the question was about the importance of the run game in this one for both teams and the importance that Joe Mixon and the role he would play potentially good, bad, and different in this, in this game, obviously a lot of credit. Again, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes goes to Frank Pollock in the offensive line, three new starters there and whatnot. But Joe Mixon put the Bengals continuously when he, when his number was called on early downs, continuously put them in very good positions, either getting it, netting a first down or getting six, seven, eight, nine yards on a carry, that sort of thing, just continued to put the Bengals in good positions, ex, you know, help them extend drives and everything. An outstanding game by him. I think there were still even some yards he left out there uh, a couple of times by getting tripped up uh, after, after contact. But to me, I know it's a passing league. I know it's about the quarterbacks and this, this and that. But in that weather, in that venue, keep you know a lot of the cliches to me ring true. Which was keep Josh Allen the offense off the field if you can. Um, you know, really kind of keep the defense, the Buffalo defense, honest with a with an established run game. The Bengals were able to run the ball well because they were passing well early, though. So it was the pass that set up the run kind of, and then they were able to kind of bleed clock later on. But man, I I can't overstate really the importance of having that offensive balance this week and the performance by Joe Mixon. I mean, that's how you win now in 2023. You you pass to set up the run and you have these efficient passing games that can just beat basically any type of scheme, any type of coverage, so long as you have the protection to handle it. And then you kind of attack defenses with, a multiple run game where you can hit him with these man concepts. You can hit him with these zone concepts. It, it was just, I mean, credit to you, man, for, for calling this out because like my, my biggest concern, well, I wasn't only, doing that to like, Hey, pat myself. Well, no, no, back, well, no, right? because, because you, you were, you were dead on, you were dead on with it. And I, I don't think a lot of people expected like this type of output to happen. 172 yeah. yards in, in those conditions against, albeit not a great run defense from Buffalo. I think they were 16th in the NFL entering uh, this game and success rate allowed against the run. And they didn't have Daquan Jones, who's a pretty good nose tackle for them. So they were a little bit uh, light inside. But like my biggest concern with, with all these new pieces on the offensive line was figuring out you know, like what concepts work with this group, what schemes work, like how much of an adjustment period is there to make this run game work? Because Anthony... At the end of the season, when they had a fully healthy offensive line, they kind of hit another wall in the run game, and they're becoming more one-dimensional on offense. They're putting a lot more on Burrow. They couldn't rely on the run game. They they couldn't give the ball to Joe Mixon 15, 20 times a game without him only going for like 30 or 40 yards. Like They just couldn't do much of anything with a fully healthy offensive line. Now you're adding a bunch of new pieces in there, and then cohesion and chemistry and a lot of other questions come into play here. So for them to go out with one of their more efficient run games of the season in this type of stage after you already set up everything with a 14 point lead by just coming out the gate 
on fire through the passing game. It's it's an offensive coordinator's dream. Like that was my that was my initial takeaway in the first quarter. Like to be an offensive play caller and to just divvy up and design a perfect fifteen play opening script on the road in those elements has to feel like the best feeling in the world to just lean on Joe Mixon and Samaji Piran to put it away. It was yeah, I mean you couldn't have drawn it up any better that there and I, I mean, when you when you look at this one and you look at what I've noticed in a little bit of a mini rewatch last night and a little bit today, uh, I didn't count all the polls and all that kind of stuff on the offensive line, but they are showing now in some of the effective plays that they are running in with with run rushing attempts. There's a lot of the, the the tight end moving back across the play to to get someone out of the play there. There's a, a lot of um, move. I saw Adenogy a couple times pull all the way from his right side all the way to the left. A lot of guys getting to the second level and and getting uh, nice blocks there. So there's they they've been utilizing a lot of movement from tight ends from the tackles. And I think you know while Leal Collins is very stout in, at the point of attack, particularly in the run game, I think you know kind of the the a little bit of the athleticism with these long pulls from Adenogy from the right side over to the left. You can utilize that, and it's 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 working nicely. It's working very very nicely with the things they're drawn up, and and I noticed that yesterday with a lot of the pulls and utilizing tight ends going the other you know opposite direction that sort of thing. Well, they just matched their their schemes to their personnel perfectly. Like you had an energy put in great spots. You had Jackson Carmen doing you know quality things that fit well with his skill set. You had Cordell Volson and Ted Karras who've played next to each other for the entire season working together on some combo blocks. You had Max Sharping do more of down blocking compared to zone blocking. Like you, you just had the, the perfect you, you pulled the perfect levers with this offensive line. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. had a Bills defensive line that was very aggressive throughout the game. They had these wide rush lanes. They were trying to be Burrow to the outside and it allowed for just gaps to kind of free themselves open. And the leverage was already established for this offensive line. And then as soon as they got going, like the, the old cliches did ring true. And you're right. Like as soon as, as soon as you punch them in the mouth once, like the next blows just become harder and harder and harder to overcome. And then we've talked about this all year with Joe Mixon and the fact that, you know, avoiding tackles and breaking tackles sometimes isn't his strong suit when he doesn't have that space in front of him but when he gets that crease when he has that extra physical space the off- when the offensive line creates for it then you start to see the downhill nature then he starts to absorb tacklers and take them on and in 30 degree weather with sleet coming down it's just it's just a mess to deal with so two years in a row now in the divisional round in pretty frigid cold weather they take on this physical identity that kind of takes people by surprise and it's just another theme that you have to just credit this team with so when when you look at this and I mean I know you're a bit younger than I uh but I mean it, from a historical context I, I put out a, a tweet just for just a little nugget of information in case people didn't see it but basically what it said was this was the most lopsided playoff win um in Bengals history since and and I'd have to go back and look at all of the games but but since the 1990 wild card round where the Bengals absolutely thumped the then Houston Oilers. I think that one was 41 to 14. And you know, Sam Weish, even though Glanville wasn't the <laughs> coach then, uh, I think it was party, but you know, Sam Weish loved to give it to the, the Houston Oilers there. So this was the most lopsided win in favor of the Bengals in playoff in their playoff history since that game. And the last time they faced the bills in the playoffs, which was the 88 Super Bowl team, they beat them by 11. Uh, in Cincinnati so I mean there's a little bit of history here but uh, John I mean in the historical context with the with the weather the venue the team they faced 
I mean, I was I didn't see, you know, the early, early games in the playoffs. I, I, I vaguely remember, you know, some of the 88 ones, but this has to be right up there with one of the most quality, high quality wins this franchise has ever had because of, like I said, strength of opponent, venue, absolute dominance. I, I you know, I, I write up a lot of the good, bad and ugly and winners and losers this week. And I'm going, what? where are the really bad spots in this game? I, I, I couldn't really find many faults in this game. And I usually nitpick the hell out of games. And I had trouble. I mean, rightfully so. I, I couldn't think of a, a clear liability in this one. It was just a complete game. And it led to, like you said, one of the most, the most lopsided uh, Bengals victory in the postseason in the past 30 years. Just looking at this list that I have in front of me, like they've been, They've won as road dogs three times, and they've all happened within the past year. They were four-point dogs to the Titans last year. They were seven-point dogs to the Chiefs, but both of those were three-point victories. They won by three scores in this one. Take what you felt nine years ago against the Chargers in the in the oh. wildcard round, right? They lost 27-10 to 10 Must I? <laughs> as six-point favorites at home. This yeah. game was the exact inverse. Now, you didn't have multiple turnovers, from the Bills offense, like you had multiple turnovers from the Bengals offense in that one. But like that was a game where a lot of people expected the Bengals to probably win in advance and take care of the Chargers easily. And the Chargers just punched them in the mouth. And it was the exact opposite of this one. And no one really expected like this level of dominance just because there was a lot of respect for the Bills. And rightfully so. They, they're a great team. They've had a lot of success, albeit with maybe an unsustainable offense, much like the Bengals kind of had last year and the Bengals pushed the right buttons on defense and the defense is definitely something we have to talk about too because shout out to Mike Hilton for being Ooh. just this this Ooh. battering ram of a Ooh. spark plug of a 5980 pound linebacker it was just like back to back to back plays where like god I, I felt those hits on Josh Allen of all people and, and Dawson Knox and his other receivers like I feel like he set this physical tone Cam Taylor Britt did the same thing on the first drive. He kind of tackled Stefan Diggs to, to to the sleek covered turf on, on his back a little bit. Like, yeah, a little bit of a the, suplex type of thing, right? The Bengals forced two straight three and outs to begin this game, and the Bills never really found the rhythm after that. And I, I think, you know, when the Bills scored their first touchdown at 14 to 7, and, and then the Bengals uh, got a field goal the next drive, like that was the chance for the Bills to come back but they never established any real consistency on offense. And of course they're going to get explosive plays because they're, they're the bills, but it was just another example of the Bengals coming up in these big moments. And I think the, the fact that they started out of the gate so hot and fired up and just physical, it really stifled the bills from the get go. Andrew Woods. How about the freezer bowl? 27, seven. Yeah. I mean, that's probably right. That's probably the most iconic big game. I mean, for a variety of reasons, that's probably the, the most iconic win in this team's uh, I probably, I mean, that is the most iconic win really in this team's history, but this one, this one's up there, man, because similar elements, definitely not as cold, but similar, just tough elements. This time you're on the road, you're a big dog, all of that. Of course, of course, the freezer bowl is kind of the standard in terms of playoff wins for this team, but man, uh, th this one's right up there with that. But going back to the defense there, John, I mean, obviously you, you touched on some things. Would it surprise you to know that no Bills wide receiver had more than 40 receiving yards yesterday and the receiver who did have 40 yards was not Stefan Diggs? Um, it would kind of surprise me, yeah. That was the case. I mean, that so that was that that was the story of the defense. Um, I mean, they just swarmed, they were physical, 
and they just frustrated Josh Allen. And you could tell some of that frustration came out with Josh Allen when he ran into the end zone for the only touchdown that they had in this game. And they just had an exceptional plan. And it was, a, a you know, when you look at, obviously, you know, Eli Apple's had some good moments with this team. Cam Taylor Britt, exciting rookie. Uh, Mike Hilton, we know he's a stud. But, I mean, as you look around the, the league and as outsiders probably look into this Bengals team, they go, those are their corners, right? I mean, there's not there's not a household name there, right? There's not a Darrell Revis in his prime type of guy. It's just a lot of guys who work hard, play well together, and step up in huge moments. I know Eli Apple, sometimes it's it's real. he's real streaky. But I, I tell you what, John, in – these big postseason games, the last two seasons, he seems to have at least one or two big plays in these games. And he had that tipped ball at the at the goal line to, to stall a drive by the Bills late in the game. It definitely seemed like the defensive line were kind of the stars early in the game. Like they kind of hit and rattled Allen and that kind of got him off his rhythm. And then the secondary, specifically Eli Apple and Cam Taylor Britt, really finished it. There were multiple examples of both Apple and Taylor Britt just staying in the hip pocket Others of these receivers. There was one play where Taylor Britt kind of missed um, a, a press against Gabe Davis and Davis stacked him on a vertical route. And, you know, he was trying to recover as fast as he could. Gabe Davis is a great vertical receiver. The ball was right on line for Gabe Davis. He couldn't, he didn't have time. Taylor Britt didn't have time to turn his head back to find the ball. So he did the next best thing and just reached up with his hands to time when Davis was reaching up with his hands and knocked the ball away. Like, I think feel like that was a way more impressive play than his first career interception, which shout out to him to close the game with his first career pick and getting that pick yeah. on Josh Allen. Multiple examples of Eli Apple doing something very similar against Stefan Diggs and Gabe Davis. Like there was the play where he was running stride for stride with, with Diggs in, in the end zone and it forced an errant throw from Allen out of bounds, which Tony Romo called a perfect throw for some reason and, and not really sure where he was getting that. It was a great day by both these cornerbacks and that was a big question how are they going to match up against both these receivers Gabe Davis is a postseason star and he was relegated to his regular season form and Stefan Diggs he's tweeting through right now his frustration and that was all because of what Eli Apple and Ken Taylor Britt did to him so Joseph Asai and the defensive line started it at all and then Mike Hilton in the secondary they finished it there were, and I don't want to go into this because I don't cover the Buffalo Bills. We don't write about the Buffalo Bills, but there were some signs of some uh, under the under the surface issues coming up towards the end of that game. There, and when it when it ended, you saw Diggs and Allen. You know, Diggs kind of you know Allen kind of buried his head in his tablet there, looking at the plays. Diggs kind of chirping him at, at him a little bit. There was reports that Diggs left the facility kind of early before anybody else. Uh, then he had to be brought back in um, after the game, all of that. So there seems to be some tempers boiling over there. I don't, I don't blame them. You know, they've been on the precipice of uh, really special seasons and they had a good season this year. Um, just not the one that I think a lot of people expected. And uh, I think this is also uh, one from the Cincinnati Bengals side that I don't think a lot of people expected, especially when you saw them start 0-2. We're going to talk a little bit more about the offensive line. We've got a lot more to talk, talk about in terms of uh, – headlines and whatnot he's john sheeran i'm anthony kazenza this is the orange or black insider part of the cincy jungle podcast channel i don't normally sit around in the dark here i promise but uh just kind of what it is with the lighting in this particular room here we'll try and get that figured out but uh anyway happy to have you joining us we got a lot of live listeners right now this is pretty awesome across multiple platforms so good to be chatting and and hanging out with all of you talking about the Bengals going to 
the AFC Championship game. If you're new here, do do me a favor and do John a favor here. Leave leave us a little comment if you're on the YouTube or Facebook side of things. Leave us a little comment saying, "Hey, first time checking it out or haven't seen you guys for a while or something like that." We always like to hear. We see a lot of familiar names, which is awesome. We love all you guys and gals. But if you're new here, uh, let us know. And of course, you can get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere on your favorite audio favorite audio platform. And then, like I said, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can do that below John there. But with that Cincy Jungle icon, there's a show icon. Click that. Click subscribe. And uh, be notified when we go live, when new content's available. You can also give a thumbs up to the Cincy Jungle Facebook page. John, why don't we talk about some refunds? <laughs> you you brought this up before the show, my friend. I'm going to give you the floor to talk about the the refunds, uh, the comments made by Joe Burrow, and the loving. I, I love the sarcasm. I think I played the clip on the show yesterday by Zach Taylor, the little sarcastic uh, jab he had for everybody wanting that game. Well, for this topic, you know, I wanted to bring on Eric Weddle to talk about it. I reached out to his agent, <laughs> and um, his agent told me in two words there was no chance that he was coming on the show to uh, talk about this game and everything that was leading up to it. But, I mean, Weddle and the refunds, it, ju- it just gave this team everything that it needed to push it over the edge. Like, th- there was enough, I think, matchups-wise, that we kind of took for granted. Like, the Bills probably weren't as prepared for the Bengals as we, we would have expected with both of their safeties suffering injuries and it really helped yeah. out the-, the Bengals' run game. But, man, like... <laughs> The, the, it was the NFL's fault for re- releasing that price about the, the ticket sales for the Bills Chiefs. I feel like that is the main difference here. And I know there's some Chiefs people and fans that are like, oh, well, the Bengals had a pre-sale. And we talked about that, too. There's a pre-sale for every potential AFC championship site. The fact that the NFL clearly wanted to advertise how successful a potential neutral AFC championship venue and plan would be. It, it, it did enough, and it definitely got into the Bengals' locker room. I, I think I heard Hayden Hurst, you had Michael Thomas, you had Eli Apple, you had just name a Bengal, and I promise you they said something about better get your refunds, which is what Joe Burrow said on uh, in his post-game interview, which I believe that you said got uh, nixed from like the NFL Plus like re- rewatch of the game or something like that. So I don't know if the NFL is kind of salty about that, but... Um, Man, like, it's just another thing, man. Like, th- this team just galvanizes with any sort of motivation that you give them, whether they have to manufacture it or not. And even if they do have to manufacture it, man, like, th- th- this team, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. This team will never be taken fully seriously until they actually win in Lombardi. And then, and even after that, it'll be win two Lombardis, right? It'll be get as far away from the stigma of the old Bengals as possible, and maybe you will get some established base of respect and recognition from the league and everything that goes with it. But until then, like like these these guys just they just thrive off being counted out, whether or not they are actually being counted out or not. Even if it looks that way on the surface, like they will do everything in their power to leverage everything that comes after them. And, th- and this whole refund situation was was just the next the next step in that. Well, you know, I, I think I saw some people who cover the bills talk about how this is potentially petty by the Bengals. If they needed this as fuel to, you know, because everybody does the ticket sales and all this kind of stuff. You know what? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if it's petty because this team 
was chapped about losing that Super Bowl last year after coming so close. They've taken that fuel. They've taken all kinds of, you know, doubter fuel throughout all of the offseason, all of the summer, um, and into the regular season with the 0-2 start. They've taken all that stuff, and they've used it to their advantage. And if you want to call them petty, if you want to say, why are you even upset about that? Who cares? It's 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 giving them wins. They're, they're rallying around each other, and they're giving them wins. They look at stats. I mean, you, you look at the post-game celebration in that locker room where they talked about they knew – that only one team had ever won in the postseason in Buffalo. They knew it. And so these are the types of things where, whether it's petty, whether you want to say, oh man, they're just doing the Bolton board thing. Who cares? It's given them wins. It's given them huge wins in their team. And oh, by the way, John, we talked about this before we took the air. How many postseason wins did the Bengals have before Joe Burrow and Zach Taylor came into the picture? I believe that was like five, maybe. They were five and 14. Yeah. So since... They have now in, it equaled the amount of postseason wins this team has ever had. They've broken the streak of never winning a playoff game on the road as a franchise. They've done that three times in the last year. And they just keep t- changing these narratives that you talked about. They just keep winning these games that they shouldn't win by everybody else's outside, you know, outside uh, opinions and whatnot. And they, they just keep doing it. They just keep doing it. I mean, these three weeks have been... Just, you, no one could possibly predict how these three weeks would, would have gone from all angles of everything that's happened with this team and just the NFL in general. Like you, You're in a position three Mondays ago where the Bengals had a chance to legitimately make a case for the number one seed, and an absolute tragedy hits. The Bengals and the Bills can't do anything about it. The, the Bengals are just kind of stuck helpless. Like, you know, like this is the situation that we're in. And we're just going to have to accept whatever happens with this. And then the, the, the resolution of it all, it ends up only kind of, you know, not, I mean, kind of screwing them really based off of everything else that happened. And like, they're, they're just powerless to stop it. Right. So like they had everything kind of in front of them and they just kind of, kind of got dealt like a crappy play based off of how every, all the other teams kind of got treated in this whole situation. And it's not, it's not right. It's not fair, but that's just the way, that it was, and I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong for them to kind of leverage that and just kind of use that for, for what they will just because, like, there were other ways to kind of resolve this, and that just didn't end up being the case. And I, I don't think it's necessarily biased against the Bengals, but, like, th- that doesn't stop them from thinking that in their minds, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with them kind of thinking that in their minds. So, yes, I think the Bengals were the better team against the Bills. They, were def- they definitely proved to be the more complete team, and they showed up when the Bills didn't, but if you just need that extra if you just need the extra edge, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm sure that the chiefs are pretty confident and have their own uh, thoughts about, you know, getting exacting some revenge on the Bengals this time around. I'm sure of that. But do you think any part of them when they saw the Bengals beat the bills, they went, uh, yes. we but I mean, I, because I, I mean, they, they have to be, in the, in their domes a little bit <laughs> with, with just the recent history. And I'm sure, I mean, not, not that, you know, the bills are a pushover or anything. And I, I guess you just look at what's been done recently, what hasn't been done recently, if you're the Kansas city chiefs. And I just wonder if, if even though they're a confident team, they're a good team. If they just went, Oh my God, really? In the last 10 years, like the Bengals have been pretty, 
relatively competitive, right? They had a good run in the 2010s. Whenever they played the Steelers, it would be the same thing. They couldn't yeah. beat the Steelers, right? That's a great Regar- point. Regardless of if it would be competitive games, there was still this mental edge that the Steelers always had over the Bengals, and that didn't break until the Bengals just got better and found ways to beat the Steelers. The, the Chiefs haven't found those answers yet, R- regardless if they're, if they're knighted as the NFL's current dynasty, regardless if they are knighted as the perennial favor to always make it to the Super Bowl they can't beat this team. They haven't found ways to do it. Now, there's only been three opportunities, but they've all happened in the past year. It's still very much fresh in their minds. I have no issue with this game being billed as a pick regardless of Pat Mahomes' health, which, which we will get to in a minute, regardless of where the game is being played. I have no issue with this game being viewed as competitive. I have no issue with people being split on who to pick. But one team is going into that field with some form of intimidation, and it damn well isn't the Bengals. Yeah, that is a great... Great point. Let's talk about the Bengals offensive line in this last, uh, as we keep moving on here. Jackson Carmen, man. Um, I I know there's a lot of, uh, I don't even know what what to say about that. There's just, there are feelings about him, uh, both, you know, on and some of the off, off field stuff we learned about this year. But I mean, I think to a degree, most of us on the field would like to see him be uh, successful. And that being said, John, that is uh, the operative word for him in his performance yesterday. There were a handful of absolutely dominant snaps there. He did have a false start that actually, if you look at the false start, it was like, who was that really a false? I mean, that was like close on the, uh, on the replay there, but maybe some slight movement there. Regardless, he is getting some love not only from you know people who who saw him play yesterday, but also um, Ted Karras and Joe Burrow keeping praise on him. I pinned the story in the live chats for folks to check it out on Cincy Jungle. I mean, what he did. We talked a little of Denny G earlier, and then of course the guy nobody's talking about, and that's a good thing when you're an offensive guard. Max Sharping coming in here and just hey, you know, next man up. Kappa was their arguably their best and or most consistent lineman throughout the year this year, but Sharping's come in there and he's just he's been fine. He's been fine. Like there's just not hasn't been a lot of complaints with that. Like I feel like of, of all the offensive linemen in this game, at Energy probably had the most trouble, but because he had the he had the toughest matchup with Greg Rousseau, who kind of mm-hmm. wins in ways that at Energy can't really counter. Joe Burrow said that he didn't really feel pressure from Carmen's side. I feel like that was a little bit of cap because he almost got injured based off of a, of a pressure allowed. I think it was right, at the end of the right. game of sack that that Carmen allowed, or at least at least, at least the uh, quarterback hit. So there were a couple of losses kind of baked into this performance. But for your first start at a position you haven't really played at in almost two years now, like Randy played twenty snaps of it, kind of cold off the bench, but preparing as a starter, game planning as a starter, entering the game with that in mind. He played really well. Like you, you can't deny it. Like the trades that you saw against the Ravens, they were on display again. Like we talked about in worse conditions, very similar level of competition, caliber of competition. I would say like the the Bills' edges are about of the same talent caliber as the Ravens. Like their scheme is a little bit different, and that definitely benefited the Bengals this time around. Like we kind of predicted that it would. So another test passed for Jackson Carmen. The the not not the concern, but the thing that to still keep an eye on is week to week consistency. Can he continue to string right. together performances? And this will be the ultimate test coming up against Frank Clark, who is a sack master in the playoffs, right? And 
Like this sounds like we have we have a microscope on him because he's kind of earned that at this point, right? Like until he proves that he's consistent in this, like there'll always and be not a liability, a yeah. Right. There will always be this this focus on him. But you can still commend him for putting together a very solid performance and just exceeding overall expectations. Like I I would venture to say that they entered this game with a definite chip on their shoulder more than most players on the roster. They hear the outside noise. They hear how fans want a 40,000-year-old Andrew Woolworth to come out of retirement on his you know, retired legs and try to suit up and play offensive line at, at that position. Now, I'm sure that he, he needed that motivation, right? That's always been kind of his, at least in terms of football, like that's always been his kind of weakness, right? Just getting motivated and getting his mind right to exemplify the talents that he has as a football player and it seems like that is clicking and again if any if you just need that extra motivation just leverage the hell out of it and i feel like that's what he did we got a lot of live viewers on a multitude of platforms good to see all of you thank you for tuning in live obviously we're all pretty excited about where the Bengals are headed and that is the AFC Championship game for the second consecutive year to face the Kansas City Chiefs. We're talking some offensive line and, of course, the praise and it being relayed uh, to us. Charlie Goldsmith of the Cincinnati Inquirer talking about it was one of their best games of the year, the offensive line as a whole. It might be our most complete game of the season as a team. I don't think that's a far-fetched statement. Uh, on Jackson Carmen, on first look, he was unbelievable. I felt nothing from that side all day. You mentioned that, John. And then Joe Danman of Fox 19 Relays that Ted Karras said Jackson Carmen proved he's a left tackle in the league. And, of course, as you kind of alluded to, that's where he played in Clemson. And that's where when the Bengals drafted him, they didn't have visions of him being necessarily a tackle, maybe right tackle. But they immediately plopped him at guard, and it did not go well for him last year. And now he's playing a natural position, and you're seeing a better version of Jackson Carmen, obviously probably one who's motivated as well. You saw a moment at the end of the game, John. I, I, I meant to pull it up, uh, I guess, here on Twitter, but I didn't, unfortunately. But there was a moment at the end of the game where Frank Pollock and him were kind of talking with each other, each other hugging, and they kind of, you know, were kind of saying stuff to each other. Um, so that was kind of a cool moment to see to see that, and you know that Pollock was proud of the project there, and you know that that game meant a lot to Jackson Carmen. And oh, by the way, I think it was his birthday. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, all of that, pretty cool stuff. But big, big kudos to the, the Bengals' offensive line in this one and the, the replacement players. They all stepped up pretty well. Now, that being said, I, I showed you the quotes here. This is also on Cincy Jungle as we continue to kind of roll through some headlines, talk about this game, the Spills game here. There was a brief Jonah Williams uh, and Alex Kappa update. You want to tell us about this, John? Yeah, so the update is that there's not really that much of an update. It's just they're making <laughs> progress and there's still their statuses are up in the air. Like I think it's now wait and see instead of week to week, which bodes maybe 1% added confidence in their availability for this week. I would still venture to say that neither of them plays just because it's a week instead of potentially having a bye to get ready for the Super Bowl. Like, it, it just seems like that is the next step here. Like, if they get past this week, then it's really on the table if at least one of these guys comes back. I think everyone was holding their collective breath when they heard on the broadcast that Ted Karras suffered a knee injury in this game and played through it and definitely didn't look 100%. 
watch out, Cordo Volson. Please don't get hurt. You're the last one left who's fully healthy out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, yeah. was kind of, I was kind of praying for his loved ones a little bit when I heard that. But Ted Karras is a tough son of a bitch. He ended up at a bar last night giving out a, a game ball. And, <laughs> yep. Yeah. With, with shout Volson. Out, shout out Oak Tavern, which is apparently where Ted Karras spent his first night, but it's pretty near my place, and I love that bar. So shout out to them and the lovely folks who run that place. But, yeah, Karras – is going to play against Kansas City. Um, he got the he got the okay uh, with with doctors and everything, but still, it's just another injury that someone's playing through. And I'm sure there's a lot more that we don't know about because that's just the nature of the NFL. And lastly, I think you had Trey Hendrickson who went to the locker room during the game, quickly returned. I think he played like his, his most snaps since suffering the wrist injury. I don't know. I, I think it was something with the wrist because I didn't hear anything otherwise. So that was that was just my assumption. But he also, uh, I think, got the go-ahead after the game as well. Yeah, my thought was that that x-ray was just to kind of check on that wrist there to make sure things are going right. But I'm sure we'll learn more throughout the week. So, I mean, I guess a little bit of an update. I guess a little bit of positivity. But it's still a little bit wait and see. Got to take it slow, particularly with the, the nature of those injuries and where they occurred. Ankles and knees are always just... You know, those are tricky ones to to timeline and all of that. And when you think it, you're making headway, sometimes you backslide or vice versa. So um, let's uh, – you, you kind of briefly, since we're on the offensive line front, you talked about this. This was kind of a fun one. Uh, a- Andrew Whitworth does show some mm-hmm. love to the Bengals offensive line. You wrote this up on Cincy Jungle. Andrew Whitworth, the only guy that I know that can wear awesome sport coats and have a hoodie um, that, that can rock that. I, I – didn't know that was a thing, um, but now I know, and I'm going to start doing that, I think, when I wear sport coats. But regardless, the guy you mentioned, everybody was clamoring for Whitworth to come back, come back, come back. And yes, while well, we romanticize that, and that would be kind of a cool thing in a lot of different ways. He's like, thanks, but no thanks, by the way. Go check out the great interview he had with Bengal Jim and Friends, uh, I believe it was last week there or two weeks ago. Go check that out, but it is up on all of our audio platforms too and their youtube channel but regardless he had some nice things to say here john about the Bengals' offensive line performance as well well yeah because he's he's heard the, these clamorings of you know come on we come out of retirement after not practicing and training for over a year let's let's just play at a high level left tackle to replace a decent starter in jonah williams right you saw what, what was going on against the bills and you saw the Bengals just punch them in the mouth for 60 seconds and as a former offensive lineman i feel like he greatly appreciated and respected what the Bengals did against all odds both jackson carmen and akeem energy really being put in great positions to succeed frank Pauly, like you said shout out to him for just formulating a great game plan against the run and brian callahan great game plan with protections that that's one of his weekly roles in getting this offensive line prepared like the fact that you have so many new permutations towards the end of the season with offensive linemen coming in and out of the lineup, specifically out of the lineup and then bringing in, bringing in new guys like this is not easy. And I feel felt like this is high praise from someone who, I mean, has played more offensive line than most people who's ever played the position. And of course his quote, it was via Twitter. Uh, and y'all thought the Bengals needed my old butt with, with a couple laughing faces, uh, laughing emoji faces, put some respect on these men's names. I see you big fellas. And he specifically points out uh, Jackson Carmen and Hakeem Adenogy in the tweet there. So, um, you know, cool, cool to see that. And obviously with a great guy, we know that. And he just wants to kind of say, Hey man, let's support these guys. And if you saw him, 
you know, on that on that interview with with J- Bengal Jim and whatnot, he, I mean, he's pulling for the Bengals. There's there's no doubt about that. He's he's pulling for them. So we'll see what happens. But as you mentioned, John, um, well, let's go here first. Going back to the game itself with the Bills uh, snap counts. You do this weekly on Cincy Jungle. And what were some of the themes and or different things that you saw come out of the snap counts from this week? Well, you know what? Maybe we should have been, maybe we could have predicted this Bengals running game renaissance because when they elevated Nick Bowers, I don't think all that Bengals fans knew who Nick Bowers is. I barely know who he is, but he's a practice squad tight end. Mm -hmm. They elevated Mm -hmm. him to the active roster that gave him four tight ends. And that led them to having all three tight ends kind of have significant roles in, in this game. Mitchell Wilcox and Hayden Hurst almost played the exact same amount of snaps, and Devin Asiasi was in there for 14 snaps, and all of them, all of them got added in the got added in the run. They game. sure and did. Hayden Hurst it got his golden or not golden Garnett luscious locks in there for some physical <laughs> blocking. Mitchell Wilcox got got in dirty. Devin Asiasi pulling around the formation. All of them yeah, made an yeah. impact in the run game, and all of them played significant snaps. But then on defense, last two weeks you had um, different types of game plans against the Ravens defense. You had more heavy fronts um, in, in, in their personnel. Now you're in nickel for 98% of the snaps against the bills. And that led to Mike Hilton playing, I think 35 more snaps in this game than he did against the Ravens. And he made an impact against the Ravens, right? But when you have Mike Hilton out there for 62 snaps, I think Luna Rumo will never complain about that. He had a phenomenal game. I think four pressures and just five pass rushing snaps off the edge. He made an impact on every single one. There were a couple of times he was beating coverage, but again, you're playing the Bills. Sometimes they're going to get over the top of you when you play mm-hmm. zone. So that comes with the territory. So it was nice to see Mike Hilton out there for more than just 20 or so snaps. And on defensive line, you had another change in dynamic. Instead of Cam Sample being out there to defend the run against the Ravens, you had Joseph Osai playing a lot more than Cam Sample in this one just because the need to pass rush against Josh Allen and Osai made right. an impact early and often in this one. And like I mentioned earlier, with Trey Hendrickson, he played the most snaps that he's played in since that wrist injury. He played in 30 last week. He was up to 32 this week. The thing to note here, too, when you go back to Hilton... Uh, there was no Trey Flowers this week, so um, yeah. so you know now when you saw what he was able to do in a couple of games, really the last three games against Kansas City with you know being charged with taking on Travis Kelsey, did a real I think it was the maybe it was the championship game or was it the regular season game last year I can't remember which one but really helped to minimize the impact of Travis Kelsey. So that's a guy that, you know, we're going to have to monitor the injury report this week. And then you see, I think that partially played into, I mean, I think the game plan was to have Mike Hilton be out there a lot, blitz from the slot, as they did kind of a little bit of the Mahomes type of plan of attack with the defensive line and everything. But I I think this week here, well, I think Hilton last week was out there maybe a few more snaps than normal without a Trey Flowers out there. So I'm going to be interested to see what his status is going into this week, particularly particularly with Kelsey and being a, a big weapon there. So, um, but yeah, good breakdown there, John, with the snap counts. And then you mentioned this, good sir, that uh, this game now, and this is via Ben Baby of ESPN, put this out about an hour or so ago, um, after opening as 2.5 point underdogs two-and-a-half-point underdogs. Cincinnati is now a one-point favorite to beat Kansas City in the AFC Championship for Caesar Sports. Caesar Sports, good friend of the show, bringing us the likes of Trey Wingo on uh, on this show a couple of different times. So we got love for them. But, uh, yeah, man, that is uh, – that's kind of a different 
vibe around this game than I think a lot of people would have expected because it's in Kansas City. I, you know, I think really Vegas is potentially looking at that injury to Patrick Mahomes. And then, of course, the recent history between these two teams and the terror that the Bengals are currently on, regardless of who they play. And it's, it's going to be another tug of war, I think, of who's the underdog, who's more slighted in this one. You, you saw that a lot last week with like Bill's uh, people and fans trying to say like, oh, we're, we're being counted out against the Bengals. Well, now the Chiefs are underdogs at home in the playoffs. That's never happened before. Uh, at least in my memory, it's it's definitely not happening with Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. But I, I mean, obviously the the injury makes a factor into this one. And on the other side, I, I think there might be Bengals fans who thinking, yeah, we should we should be more than just one point favorites. Like we've beaten this team three times. We we definitely have their number. We're on a hot streak. Like we're on a roll. We, we're coming off our best playoff game in the history of the team. Like yeah, we should be the favorites. We should be more than just a point favorites. But I think everyone views this game as a pick 'em. It's going to be a slugfest. It's going to be a lot closer than the 17 points. They already played each other pretty closely early in the season, and the teams haven't really changed that much aside from the Bengals' offensive line and this high ankle sprain that we're going to monitor like crazy for the next six days. Yeah, that's that's going to be part of the of the deal, the the old injury report, and we'll see if the Bengals can come out on top, and we'll have a lot of stuff to help preview that. We've got some special guests we're lining up this week, uh, including bringing back – the believe in chiefs joe valerio former chiefs offensive lineman we're going to be bringing him back later this week it's always a clinic talking with that guy i love talking football with that guy um always makes me feel a lot smarter ivy league guy played in the league played for the chiefs when joe montana was there so he knows a thing or two about football big time football all of that we're going to have him back on the program we've got some other high profile guests that we're going to bring on the program for a big big week and uh the weeks ahead hopefully as the Bengals try to get back to the Super Bowl for the second consecutive year. John, let's close up shop, my friend. What do you got for us as we drop the mic and get on out of here? I I kind of want to share just the, the, a clip that I posted last night. Yeah, this is cool. Um, I mean, climbs up on the bar. Love it. Um, I I don't know. I are you, I don't know if you were playing sound with it. We weren't. Oh, getting sound. I, I was. My bad. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, we weren't getting that's... we weren't getting sound with it. For people who did, weren't watching the video, that was Zach Taylor showing up forty minutes after his flight landed off a road playoff game, walking into the Ryan House and in a suit. In a suit, again, fresh off the plane, didn't go home, had a game ball in his hand, climbed up on the bar stool, led Hude chance, and then eventually made a speech. I know he did this last week. I know that I was there for that. Like I saw with my <laughs> eyes. I know he's. Do- I know he's done this for two years now, and it's still never going to be normal to me. I don't think. Like he could be doing this for the next ten years, and every playoff win will, I'm sure, feel as good as these past five have in these past two years, you don't see this ever at any coach at any level, especially not an NFL head coach. Like these guys have these egos, like they're one of 32 people in the world who have the privilege of having this job. And it takes a special kind of mind and a person to kind of handle that spot. And you don't see this type of camaraderie and this commitment to 
galvanizing and involving the community like the coach of the Bengals does. Like you certainly wouldn't expect this from Marvin Lewis. No shade to Marvin Lewis, but like the 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 difference is stark compared to any head coach maybe in the recent memory of the NFL. Like this is it's storybook type stuff. Like people like I've never seen Friday Night Lights, but people tell me like this is the embodiment of the coach Taylor of that show. And it's just I don't know. Like I I can't I can't ignore how special and, and surreal that it feels that an NFL head coach does this stuff and makes it, 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 it he's just another dude he's just another member of the community he's another person who just embodies and embraces the spirit of the city and it's just it's always going to be special to me so a lot of people probably think that you and I have like these drop mic drop things as we kind of start ending the show like maybe scripted or we share what we're going to say. And I would say 98% of the time we do not do that. And what you just did plays very nicely on some of the things that I've been thinking about. And I wanted to say here in this, at this point, I I began kind of thinking today about the, these types of clips, right? Zach Taylor going into these and giving the game balls out to the city and just how the city has rallied around him and this football team and what, I mean, I go back to when the Bengals were hiring him as their head coach. And I have to think that he, um, Elizabeth Blackburn, Katie Blackburn, maybe, you know, maybe a bit of Mike Brown as well, but they, they had this vision together, this aligned vision of we need to wrap our arms around this city. We need to show this fan base that we do care about winning. We do care about them coming to the games. We do care about all of this and, and, brush away the narratives that have existed about them and this team for a very, very long time. And in a short, short period of time, John, they have done, I mean, I don't know if miraculous is the right word, but exceptional in that regard of embracing the fans, embracing their former players, making things more modern and running things in a way that they can be proud of, in a way that the city can be proud of, the fans could be proud of. And I'm talking the Ring of Honor. I'm talking about the events that the, the little, uh, well, not little, but the, the pep rally before the Super Bowl. These types of events that you would just never think in your wildest dreams would be part of what the Bengals were about, this ownership was about. And, and oh, by the way, practice, indoor practice facility now, right? I mean, all, all this stuff. And it's amazing what happens when there is a synergy between the fans, between, um, you know, the fans and the team, between the coach going out there in the community, between, you know, players getting out there, coming on shows like ours, even though we're not with the, um, you know, we're not on bangles.com or anything like that. They give us time. And it's just, it creates this awesome synergy between everybody and, you know, winning begets winning and, you look at just how when you do things the right way, when you run things the right way, when you embrace the fans, all of these good things follow. And, you know, I, I just, I don't find it overly coincidental that when you see things like this, like Zach, like you just put out there, Zach Taylor going into, into, you know, community establishments, the team really showing a lot of love to the fans recently and vice, you know, vice versa with that as well. Um, a lot of good has come from that. And I'm not just talking on the football field. I'm talking about charity stuff. I'm talking about all of it. So I I just couldn't be more, more pleased. And, and, you know, I, I look at this, I'm going to share this real quick and I hope that the 
volume won't come up. I shared this on Twitter in case anybody um, did not see this, but this is just a really cool thing here. I think this is, uh, this is Max Sharping. And I think his little son, he's got his, his Jersey on, it says daddy on the nameplate there in the snow, his little guy all bundled up. This is a guy who is a street free agent. The Bengals got him on the waiver wire, comes in, starts a high profile game for him, plays well. The team gets an, you know, one of their top, probably three wins uh, ever. And it's just little visions and images like that where you go, wow, this is we're we're in the middle of another really special season. And the Bengals have done things the right way the past couple of years to get themselves there. I saw a Max Sharping jersey in the stands. Like, I didn't even know that like those were even made for for fans to buy. But I mean, shout out to the fans, too. I didn't see any clips of Bengals fans breaking tables. But I mean, I can't think of very many better traveling fan bases than what the Bengals have. And I'm sure there will be. A lot of people at Arrowhead making that same trip that they did last year. And, man, it's just like Field of Dreams. If you build it, if you build a winning culture, if you yep. build a place that that you want to be a part of, they will come. And it, the city has always wanted to be involved in that way. And you're just seeing the, the benefits kind of unfold themselves at the moment. Yeah, thank you very, very, very much, Eric R., for your extreme generosity there to the uh, – with the, with the super chat. Appreciate that immensely. I, again, I go back to, you know, Taylor being a guy who coached at UC, right? Uh, so he knows the area. He knows the passion and he probably he wanted brought, to come back here. Right. And he knew the passion the city had for, for football, high quality football teams. And I think that that vision aligned perfectly with what Elizabeth Blackburn wanted to do with what Katie Blackburn wanted to do in moving this team forward. Mike Brown, you know, said, sure, let's go. I'll, I'll co-sign all of it. And they did it. And here they are on the precipice of another Super Bowl here, but they got to take care of a big, big task at hand in the Kansas city chiefs. We've got a lot more to cover this week for you. And we'll bring that to you, John. Uh, we went a little long, but this has been a, a really fun show. Ton of live viewers. This is awesome. Good to, good to chat with you as always, my friend, and good to chat about what we're chatting about with the Bengals going to the AFC championship game. On to the next one. On to the next one. We'll see everybody soon. Have a good night.